In a minute, you're going to hear an expression. Whatever can go wrong can be made right. And I think that takes some incredible courage if wrong is such that it changes your life. I imagine that many of you, like me, have sat in a wheelchair and have tried to maneuver it to see what it was like. We visit a bathroom at bars. We walked up a ramp instead of stairs. But that was our choice. What I try not to imagine is if that was my life. That that wheelchair was in fact my chariot. That those bars were necessary to count the inabilities of my legs. And so much of my daily energy was expended on effort to access a world that is so accessible to others. And that turns into a nightmare if I imagine that happening at the flick of a switch. Being in the wrong place at the wrong time, a freak accident, diving where I shouldn't be, and I was suddenly given a new life sentence. Would I be able to cope? I just don't know. I remember Rick Hansen on my show. He was a super athlete and aspiring Olympian. But he sat in the wrong place in the back of a truck. And it rolled over and his legs were crushed. And what I so admire about Rick is that he chose to continue to compete at a world level, becoming arguably one of Canada's greatest athletes. And then he took his wheelchair and he took it around the world to open our minds to what it's like to not be part of a world that's accessible. We have to be able to liberate people's ability not just to participate, but to truly contribute. W. Mitchell. Coming back from the Vietnam War, gets in a motorcycle accident, gas tank explodes, he's burnt so badly they don't think he'll survive. He finds his way through it, learns how to fly a plane, and crashes it. And he loses his legs, and he wrote a book called It's Not What Happens to You, It's What You Do About It. These people, to me, are heroes. And I don't know what I'd do if a sledgehammer almost claimed my life. Would I care again? Would I live the life of a victim? Would I get angry at people who glanced at me with pity? I pray I never have to know it, but I think it's important that we really see the world through their eyes. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Wendy Murphy. Her life turned on a dime at age 19, and until then, she was someone with an inordinate amount of energy spirit, taking stairs three steps at a time, a dancer, a cheerleader. She just had an incredible and insatiable appetite for life. And then a car accident changes everything forever. She loses her best friend and she loses the use of her legs. This is an accident she never asked for or deserved, but today she's convinced it happened for a reason. She's on this planet. She's living this life to let other people know there's so much more we should be doing as a society for those with hidden or visible disabilities. Wendy Murphy, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thanks so much, Tony. Well, it's an honor to be here. We're going to get to August 38 years ago when your life changed. And we're going to talk a lot about your mantra, whatever can go wrong can be made right. But first, I want to know a little bit about Wendy Murphy before the accident. Tell me about your life, your family, your dreams, and just sort of set the situation that we all have sort of in our teens where we think the world is and the canvas is endless and we're going to be able to paint whatever we want on it. Actually, Tony, I was living my dream at the time. I was in a very, very great place in my life. I had a wonderful job with Dom Tar. Uh, I, my family, my family, an incredibly supportive family, and I'm the middle child of three I've got an older sister and a younger brother and uh, some unsurmountable friends. Um, 
lots of friends and very active life. I was a dancer, tap, jazz, and ballet. I competed internationally for that. And, um, yeah, my life, my life was, I was at the pinnacle of life as far as I was concerned. But what do I know at 18? Actually, the accident happened at 18. My first legal beer was prescribed by my doctor. Let's take this back. You weren't just sort of uh, a hobby. I mean, it was dancing something you thought you might make a career out of? Um, no, not really. Um, I guess it was more for the athleticism of it and just keeping in, keeping fit and in shape. And what did your parents think of that? I mean, is that something that I know that some parents who have people with athletic ability, you see it everywhere and you walk in, the, the pictures on the walls and there's a special shelf for trophies and stuff. Were your parents like that or were they just happy you were kind of doing something besides hanging around the mall? My parents were great in terms of putting us, getting us involved in other things. We took uh, dancing, we took skating, we took piano, we took, they put us in all our lessons, I guess, looking for our, our, our gift. And uh, dancing was something I returned to at 13 years old. So um, I started competing then and it wasn't, it wasn't a cheap pastime either. So my parents, my parents were glad that I found something like you said, rather than the malls. But um, I enjoyed doing it. The middle child of three. So what was, uh, what was the whole relationship like with your siblings? Uh, very close to my sister, actually. We're only two years apart. My brother could be a little a little rant at times. But yeah, so my sister and I would gang up on him every now and then. But yeah, we grew to love him. Well, I have three sisters. And I, I'm going to just say right up front because they can't defend themselves. They beat up on me all the time. <laughs> That's the way it goes. So I want you to take me back, if you can, to... August, I guess, 38 years ago. And what happened that day? It, was there any premonitions? And sort of take us through the accident and and sort of when you really woke up to the realization your life had changed forever. Well, we were at Shirkston Beach. Um, it was our second, second trip there uh, that summer. And the community was there. So there was about 40 of us from our community there. And um, it was getting late on the Monday afternoon and it was time to go home. And it was a long weekend, the August 6th long weekend. And um, I guess I knew that I had to go back to work. So I wanted to leave the, the beach early and the drive that I was supposed to take, the driver wasn't ready to go. So um, I opted to go with Don, uh, the driver of the vehicle. And my best friend, Grania, was, was going to join us. And funny enough, there were three or four people that were supposed to come back with us that jumped out of the van just minutes before we left the beach. So... Um, I, it, it was all faded. And why do you think they jumped out? It was just, they decided they wanted an extra hour of fun or it was just. They just decided, yeah, that they wanted to, a, a few more hours on the beach. You're driving back and was there, I mean, take us through that point. What do you remember of the accident? Um, I don't remember much. Uh, we stopped for pizza before we hit the road or the highway. And, um, I remember getting into the back of the van. Actually, Tony, by law, the laws of, uh, seatbelts weren't really, uh, enforced back then. So none of us were wearing seatbelts. I laid down on a mattress in the back of the van and my best friend was in the front seat with the driver and we we headed home. And apparently 15 minutes before we got home, the driver, Don, had lost control of the vehicle and the van rolled around, rolled over approximately six times before coming to a full stop and um, ejected both Granny and I out of the vehicle. Did you wake up in the hospital? Did you wake up? Yes, I did. I did. Um, I remember I was in intensive care at the time, and um, I, I heard beeps and clicks, and I really woke up not knowing where I was. And then I looked around and could see people with bandages and 
I mean, common sense told me that I was in a hospital at that point, but um not sure of what, what had happened. And my cousin had visited me in the intensive care unit and she had told me to sort of stay patiently and to stay still was very important at the time. And my lung was collapsed. So they put me in intensive care before surgery. So I was in intensive care for a week and a half before they actually operated stabilizing the back. And when did you first come to the realization that this wasn't bruises, that this was something that it was very serious that had happened here? It was after waking up in intensive care. Actually, I wasn't in intensive care anymore. I was now in my own room. And when I woke up, it was a very sterile setting. And I, I knew then that there was something. I couldn't feel my legs, actually, Tony, and I didn't know what was wrong at that time. But my parents came into the room, and that's when I was. I asked them, you know, what had happened? Where am I? What's really going on here? And they, um, I asked about Grania and Dawn almost immediately, and uh, they told me that Dawn was fine. They told me about the accident, the fact we weren't wearing seatbelts, and then they told me the bad news of Grania. And so your best friend didn't make it. You're both ejected, and she died at the scene of the accident? Yes, she did. How do you even begin to compartmentalize two pieces of news. One, that your best friend died and you're still alive, but you're alive without the use of your legs. It was it was a difficult time. And I, I think that a lot of it was guilt, um, just in terms of not wearing seatbelts and that I didn't get in the front seat opposed to her getting in the front seat. So initially it was guilt, um, a tremendous amount of guilt on my on my conscience. And um, I guess then it, it took, it, it was days before I sort of came around and came to the realization that I was going to be paralyzed. And um, it was it was very daunting, um, I have to say, being as active as I was and uh, always going, always on the go. So trying to accept and come to terms with the fact that I wasn't going to be able to use my legs was pretty overwhelming. Was it ever a time back then where you wished you'd almost traded places? Oh, absolutely. And I even write that in my book. Um, I, yeah, there was definitely a time that I thought, my gosh, um, my my guilt for her her death turned into envy. And I thought, you know, she's gone to a better place and I'm left here in hell, so to speak, um, to try to cope with all that I was going through. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Regardless of how bad life seems, there's always someone that's struggling more. And if you could focus on that, I said, and if I could be that person, there were people that broke their neck and couldn't use their hands. And those are people that I wake, I think of every morning I wake up. When you have your life in perspective and when you know that there's other people that are much worse off, you start to feel gratitude again. Joining me today is Wendy Murphy whose life changed on the dime at the young age of 19 when in a tragic car accident, she loses the use of her legs. How do you even begin to repair yourself in the way that you're going to go from, you know, as you said, I went from guilt to envy, you know, and I was wondering, like, how am I going to even function? When did you start even beginning? There was a glimmer of hope that there's still life to be lived. I was very fortunate coming from such a supportive family. Um, I think that you're a product of your environment. My, they were extremely encouraging. And they actually bought a new home after my rehab and put an elevator in the home and gave me full access to the home. So I was able to, uh, reestablish myself, I guess, in my, in my, with my disability. And, uh, the process then became slowly. And my, I always say take one day at a time because that's such an important, such an important note to self because, 
Um, well, like my dad always said, you know, tomorrow's a mystery or yesterday is history. Tomorrow's a mystery. Today's a gift. It's the present. So um, living one day at a time is very important because you sort of follow you follow steps in life and um, the routine shifts, but you shift with it. There must be times where you wake up to that, the mystery of the next day and you go, it's not a day I want to live. I don't feel better than I did yesterday. I feel worse. I feel like I'm, I, I'm not moving forward. Do you ever feel that way or is it more each day got a little bit better? I tend to be an optimist and I guess I focus more on the positives. I had, a, I had my family with me. I had friends with me. Um, when we moved into the new home, I had the home that was fully accessible. Um, the bylaws, actually, bylaws were coming into place. So um, just in terms of the physically challenged and the disabled. Uh, so the parking permits came into place. The bathrooms, um, bylaws were in place regarding the bathrooms being accessible. So I, I thought to myself that if my timing... My timing was pretty on. But I read in an interview, you said they were coming on, but they weren't there. I mean, there was times where you were out and you you had to scramble to find a bathroom that you could fit your wheelchair in. There must have been a very different world back then when there's, people are just starting to wake up to the realities that you deserve the same accessibility as anybody else. I really have to make that point because it was almost 40 years ago. So back then, you really never saw wheelchairs. And that's really what, what brought on the the passion and the urge to start modeling. Um, I guess it was trying to make a difference and to expose the issue for the disabled community as a whole. I had modeled when I was younger, but um, I took it more seriously at this point, And it was more of a mission to um, expose the issue of disability. Talk to me about as you start going out into the world. I mean, it's one thing you're in the safety of your home and your parents had the resources to make it accessible to you. But what was it like to go out there that the girl that people used to look at because you're smiling and leaping upstairs and dancing and capable of modeling at young age and people must be looking at you very different now because you're waist high and you're and you're in a wheelchair. I mean, was that difficult to deal with? Well, thankfully, I had a good head on my shoulder. And I didn't take it personally because, and the other grace being, I had the best of both worlds. So I understood the ignorance because I was there once. I wasn't born with a disability. Um, so I fully understood the ignorance and did my best to, I guess, educate people. And it was frustrating at, at times. I'll never forget when I was moving out of my house, I would go shopping with friends and the people in the shop, in the store, in the retail store would talk to my friends and they'd all look at them and say, it's her money. You better talk to her. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I mean, you definitely face um, those those discriminatory moments. You go back into your knapsack and you did a bit of modeling as a child, but you decide now that in a wheelchair... It's time that the modeling industry that really is defined itself by chasing false beauty stereotypes. I'll take beautiful people and Photoshop them to make them more beautiful. <laughs> you decided you're going to make a change. So how did that come about that you, you went right into the prejudice and the ignorance of the beauty industry and said, I can change that? How did that all come about? Um, I guess it was my determined mind, um, just in terms of hoping to make the difference and to expose the issue. And um, initially, I was going to go back to Judy Welsh. And I had modeled with Judy Welsh um, when I was younger and going back to Judy. But I thought, how would, why would Judy take me on when she's got all these beautiful, perfect number 10 models? Um, so funny enough, I was listening to a radio station in the morning and um, I heard... Uh, a promotion for a disabled 
a disabled agency. And so I jumped on, on the bandwagon. I called her right away and sent her some pictures and, um, it was, it was incredible. I got some headshots done and, um, almost immediately after her sending them out, um, the ball started rolling. Who was the first person that took a chance on you as a, as a model? Actually, I give them so much credit even today was the Bay, the Hudson Bay Company. Um, they, they, um, opened their doors and, and took the risk of, of using me. And I'll never forget my first, my first modeling shot was in Levi jeans. And, um, the fact that I was head to toe, um, I was, I was astonished and just so elated, so elated to have them, um, so welcoming. Did you ever wonder what was being whispered inside the boardrooms of the Bay? Cause I have to believe back then there was some people that would say, that's not great advertising. That's, that's going to turn off people versus, you know, what advertising is supposed to do is engage and capture attention. Do you ever imagine that was going on or did you just say, I'm just going to go forward regardless of what people think? Well, one thing I have to say is I'm very proud to be Canadian and Hudson Bay being a Canadian, uh, corporation and department store. Um, they, um, I always say that in terms of multiculturalism and mainstreaming and everything has always been a part of our, of our, of our way here in Canada. So I always say, because in my, in my, I guess my success, uh, moving forward with the modeling, I mean, I would end up in, in the States in other ways. And, um, I actually won a beauty pageant and competed internationally. And when I got there, um, I was asked to be on talk shows and the talk shows had Miss Wheelchair USA. Meanwhile, here in Canada, they put me in the in the pageant with able-bodied people. So again, very proud to be a Canadian. You decide that this modeling is, you know, it's, yes, it's a great way to make a living, but you turn it into more of a mission. And I, and from what I understand, that mission starts resonating because parents that have children that are disabled start writing you and saying you're, you've become a role model. Yes, absolutely. And I, I couldn't have been more, more pleased because my mission was being accomplished, so to speak, Tony, because I did get, um, through my agent letters, beautiful letters from parents saying that their children did see me in modeling, modeling catalogs and, um, said that I was inspiring them to say that they wanted to do the modeling as well. So, um, it was definitely, but, um, it was more for the able-bodied community as, as well, because um, opening doors and sort of breaking through uh, stereotypes was really my mission as well. So um, I guess the more that I progressed, because I eventually made it into television um, as a reporter for City TV, uh, the more that I sort of moved forward and streamed forward, uh, the more doors were opening for me and success was was part of it. Yeah, I mean, we used the word ignorance. You even applied it to yourself prior to having this, the, the accident that you were ignorant about circumstances, like the ones you'd have to live your life with. What kind of ignorance did you experience along the way? Did anybody reach out and question how dare you become a model or be on television? Or was just everybody very positive and, and supportive? Very positive and supportive. And again, being Canadian, um, again, mainstreaming always the factor and a way that we that we live our, our life here in Canada. Um, I think that being in the right place at the right time, 
My timing was good. Uh, I think all those factors were part of it. And my tenacious sort of spirit. <laughs> and how about models that were, you know, in their mind, able-bodied? Did they feel you were deserving this work? Was there any kind of jealousy or envy? Because if not, I'm really just, it's a wonderful testament to human nature that everybody was there as a cheerleader versus some people kind of questioning, why are you changing the status quo and how we're supposed to see people in wheelchairs? I think you meet you meet sort of the negative attitude in everything that you do in life or the people with chips on their shoulder or that didn't see a place for me. I mean, I definitely witnessed that, but I just never let it in any way um, impede on my on my mission or what I hope to accomplish. But yeah, no, I, I definitely ran into people that that sort of bared more of a an attitude towards me or or a disbelief in terms of me being there. But I just I just uh, wrote it off and continued on my way. Where did you get that strength? I mean, that you know, people call that a thick skin, but to me, it still has to penetrate. It still has to hurt at times, given that you're doing. You know, the rungs you're climbing are rungs you're just climbing with the use of your arms. I mean, it's fortitude, it's mental attitude. It must hurt at times when, like anybody that's felt racism or prejudice, that's so undeserving. I guess, again, I just I focus on the positive and I think of all the good that I had happened in my life and all the good people that are there that I don't let the ones that show attitude or that in any way discredit me. I just don't let it rub off on me. Is your opinion of what beauty is, did it change when you were 17 compared to afterwards? Absolutely. Absolutely. Beauty is beauty comes from within, I believe. And um, it's not the superficial sort of way. And the fact that I made it into the modeling industry tells you that it's that it's really not. Uh, I'm far from a 10 and um, definitely, uh, you know, kept kept struggling to to move forward with things and yeah so the the modeling industry i definitely or the as far as beauty goes beauty comes from within and there's no perfect there's no perfect 10 in this world coming up wendy murphy again shows her tenacity when she convinces one of the legends in media to give her a job on his television network Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. A shout out to RBC for investing to create more accessible spaces for both employees and clients. For example, flexible workstations that can be raised or lowered to accommodate wheelchairs, white noise to remove static for those with hearing aids, and a centralized resource to support employees with disabilities. Diversity and inclusion matter to RBC. I believe things happen for a reason and I do believe I'm very spiritual and I you know believe that the universe has given me a wonderful opportunity a platform to some degree that life goes on when something devastating happens and then it's you know it's not all over. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman presented by RBC. Wendy Murphy's my guest today. That's a wonderful story and has all the notes of uh, a Shakespearean novel tragedy to finding your way back to reclaim the life that was almost taken from you. Let's now talk about what you teased a little bit television because you go from sort of modeling, which is a very gig based business 
to really becoming a face of City TV, uh, Moses Neimer, a lot of the breakthrough and innovative work that he did. And if you were around in the 90s, I think a lot of people remember Wendy's Diary. So, I mean, tell us how television came along and what are you most proud of? Um, the television thing, um, I really wanted City TV, I have to admit. And the fact that they had the minorities and they represented minorities, I knew that I could find a place there if anywhere. I'll never forget, I was a guest on a lot of their shows with the pageant win that I had and um, all of the success that I was having as a model. And um, I should mention that I was on street legal for two years too. I had a small part on street legal as a courtroom stenographer. But um, so all the success um, sort of moving forward uh, put me on a lot of their shows. I was on breakfast television, movie television, fashion television. And um, I guess Jay Levine, who produced fashion television, had passed on. I had sent in press kits and resumes to all of them. And he let me know that my that he passed on my press kit to Moses Neimer. And so I was getting a tape ready because I had done I had done some work for YTV as well as CTV Sports. So I got a call from Moses before I even had my tape finished. So Moses, I met with Moses and we had we had a two hour meeting actually. It was wonderful and um I expressed how much I wanted I wanted something there and the interview was wonderful because he asked me, you know, what do you think of sports? What do you think of weather? What do you think of? And at the time I was so, I was so in awe of being there that I wasn't really, uh, I couldn't really find my niche. And suddenly out of nowhere, I said, how did Brona get her gig? <laughs> Brona Brown was doing the, the diary at the time. And um, I guess the rest was history because things evolved and I ended up getting Wendy's video diary. I've had Jeannie Becker on and Jeannie Becker is a great friend. And she talks about that magic time at City TV where you could dream it and do it, break every possible rule and feel so proud that you're doing it because you, you showed the world that the status quo of television in those days absolutely did change. So good for you to be part of that as well. All well put. I want to talk a little bit about today, where you are and the mission that you're on. How are we doing as a society, taking away the barriers and letting this world be accessible for everyone, not just the able-bodied people? Um, we're doing better, that's for sure. And again, having a voice as a disabled um, or a physically challenged individual uh, definitely opens doors and the possibility to see change. And right now I'm extremely passionate about the um, the accessible parking permits and I'm working with a number of organizations actually, uh, Tony, I, I got together. I started trying to make change on my own with um, Spinal Cord Injury Ontario and we, we tried to break down doors with government and the problem with government is it takes so long <laughs> just in terms of a process and we would get somewhere and then government would change from one party to another and um, so now we have um, March of Dimes Canada, we have um, multiple sclerosis, we have mu muscular dystrophy, we have Easter Seals, we have um, a, a slew of organizations on board, and we are um, hoping to get uh, change with the disabled parking permits because there's fraudulent use of the permits and there's simply not enough spaces available now for the number of people because the aging population, the baby boomers are out there now. So all of them have the permits and uh, I go out in public now and I can't, I can't find parking spots. When we talk about in your book that it took an unconventional strategy, 
And, you know, you say something to the, you mentioned it takes an unconventional strategy to change your community's perception of you and other physically challenged people. What do you mean by that? Well, modeling, modeling in a wheelchair, that was very unconventional. I mean, most people would have thought that maybe I'd volunteer my time or get involved with an organization that celebrates the disabled community. I went way the left, left field, um, just in terms of exposing the issue of disability and saying that I'm here. And we're all here and we won't be ignored. And we definitely have abilities, uh, you know, despite our disability. I love what you say about that, that it's, you know, it's that we focus on physically challenged or disabilities, but you're saying on the other side, it actually also creates incredible abilities with people. Oh, absolutely. And I'll also say, Tony, this something like this doesn't change a person. I mean, if a person's miserable, they finally have reason to really be miserable. Because it takes time and an adjustment, but I think a person refines themselves or, um, you know, adapts and becomes themselves again and will find their ways in terms of where they'll end up in the world. But, um, I mean, you have people look at David Onley, God bless him, um, in terms of all that he did for us. And, uh, I mean, there's definitely a place for all of us. Making a difference is just one thing that I've hoped to have done. So your book, Wendy Murphy's Law, I thought was just very, very clever, but I love your tagline, whatever can go wrong can be made right. Share that as a lesson in life for everyone, not just someone like you that had a sudden change in life, but just, just talk to me about it as you, as you've traveled this path, what others can learn from having that approach? Um, I think that you have to, again, try to look at the positives in life because the more you dwell on, I mean, if I dwelled on the negative in my life, I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning, you know, just with the, I mean, it, it's work to get up. So I think you have to, you have to dwell on the positives and see the positives that are in your life and sort of move forward. Um, I always say that, um, you have to decide, first of all, um, where you don't want to be anymore and then take the appropriate steps to change that. Um, in life. And I think that um, we all have something and a gift to share. And um, that moving forward is just so important and taking it one day at a time. Do you think that this accident happened for a reason that maybe this is your calling and this is this is the where you're going to put a dent in the universe is, is to open people's minds that way? I absolutely believe in some way that I was chosen because, I mean, my life turned into a fairy tale in terms of my accomplishments and all that I was able to achieve, again, with timing being being uh, so important. But, um, I mean, my life turned into a book. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know that um, everyone can say that. But, yeah, I mean, it's been an incredible ride, and I'm very pleased with the way things have evolved. And what are the chapters we're going to read about next? I can't see Wendy Murphy slowing down in terms of this cause. So what can we expect in the next couple of years from you in terms of continuing this mission and continuing to elevate what is important and what we sh- what need to be doing as a society? Well, I'm, I'm a part-time health coach. Um, so I, I coach the physically challenged community with health sort of I being the priority or, or the focus. I guess, yeah, just moving forward and keep plugging away. Um, I, I don't anyway. My shoulders, I have to say, I have to admit in the 40 years that I've, I'm still using a manual chair and I, I prefer to use the manual chair because it's more mobile and, uh, lighter weight and, I mean, I drive my own car. I do all of that. But um, 
my shoulders have sort of been an impairment with the overuse and there's painful moments with those. But um, so it slowed me down a little bit, Tony, but um, I intend to keep plugging away. And um, I I do a podcast with one of my teachers right now. Um, I I guess I keep my, I keep myself open to opportunity and the opportunity seems to flow for me. Look at, I'm here with you today. Are your parents still with you? Unfortunately, they're not. But my mother, my mother was able to see the book. So I I was able to write the, have the book published before she passed. How did that make her feel knowing that the day in the hospital where she had to come in and tell you that your best friend had died and you've lost, lost the use of your legs turned into, as you say, a fairy tale in a book? It must have made her feel incredibly proud. It did. And I'll never forget the, the real transition came, Tony, when I was looking. My parents, as I mentioned earlier, bought a new home and put an elevator in it and made it fully accessible for me. But I was the first one to move out. <laughs> so my parents were in the car. My mother was crying and we were with the real estate agent. And I was I was thinking they were crying because I was leaving this home that <laughs> they spend all this money and getting, um, you know, adapting for me. But my mother was crying tears of joy because they never in their life thought that I would be um, so independent that I would be moving out on my own. So um, I shocked them in many ways. And I guess my life as it evolved, they evolved with it. And um, we're very happy with and pleased to see the transitions that I made. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Really, life is in your mind. Life is made up in your mind in terms of what, you know, what you're able to accomplish. And the more that you limit yourself, the less you're going to achieve. So, so long as you have the right frame of mind and the focus, um, I think that anything is accomplishable. Join me now as Wendy Murphy, and if there's a word to define her, it's positivity. Do you think anything was denied of you because of your you're physically challenged? No, not at all. Um, stairs, stairs. I'm denied stairs, Tony. That's the only way that I see it. But there's always a ramp there for me. So it's all it's putting life into perspective, I think. And so long as there's a way to get me there, I'm a happy camper. You know, Wendy, I always end with my three lessons, but I think you deserve to give me three lessons in life. What would they be? My three lessons would be um, take it one day at a time. Nothing is impossible, and don't let anything or anyone stop you. Wow, those are phenomenal lessons to live by. That's what this show's all about. Absolute gems like that that people can put in their. I always said to my child's, my kids when they went to school, put me, put a banana in your mouth before you go and examine. I'm in your front pocket. I'm there cheering you on. And they, you know, when they bring that back 30 years later, you know that it sort of stuck. So. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, Wendy, I always end my shows with my three lessons learned. And the first one is one your dad did. And it was really probably an old expression where yesterday was history, tomorrow's a mystery, and today is a gift. But that really was a gift because you strike me as someone that loves every moment, but never stops moving forward. The second thing that I'm so mesmerized by is the lessons that you're giving are lessons for all of us, you know, positivity versus negativity, being tenacious, going after your dreams. And I would have thought, and you've opened my eyes, that that wouldn't be within the vernacular someone that had the tragic accident that you did. But as you said, maybe if you're just born with it, you go after it. But I I hope the people listening that aren't born with that positivity still understand that 
things are possible. And I guess the last thing is that you always use the words, I was fortunate to be born this time, I was lucky to be part of Canada. I have to tell you something. I think the, the time, we were fortunate you were born in this time. And Canada is a more fortunate country because of you. So uh, I, I, I really think you're a very special person. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tony. I've really enjoyed this. Joining me now is a frequent guest to Chatter That Matters, Joel Demby. He's the Senior Manager of Corporate Communications. He's a sought-after speaker, a global advocate for accessibility and inclusion. Joel, welcome back to Chatter That Matters. Well, thanks for having me again. Great to be here. What I've never really done justice to, and I, I don't I don't know if the word justice is right, but just what you've done as an individual with disability. From what I understand, a benign spinal tumor that was removed at birth caused partial paralysis. But by age of seven, you're in a wheelchair, but sports is what you love doing. You're, you know, you did everything from sledge hockey, baseball, golf, and then you fall in love with tennis and you absolutely crush the sport, become Canada's top ranked wheelchair tennis player, over 30 international titles you've won. And in 2012, you represent Canada at London Paralympics. I think it's important for the audience to understand that you are a very gifted athlete. I'm curious, where did it come from? I think it came from a desire to be seen, quite frankly. I mean, when most people think of disability, they, they naturally think of illness, tragedy, or I mean, let's be honest, some, some sob story. And I think when you're, when you're an athlete with a disability, it sort of changes the narrative. In my head, I think uh, when others would see me on the tennis court, they'd more see me for my athletic prowess than the wheelchair itself. And it really allowed me to channel these feelings of feeling less than and into something entirely different. And I think it also came from this desire or this need to channel my frustration at life, my anger. I mean, let's be honest, how nice is it to smack a ball around the tennis court or smash a serve when you have all this anger building up from repeated hospital visits and the frustration of getting around in a wheelchair sometimes. And I'll be honest, it was an entirely self-serving, pardon the pardon the pun, <laughs> uh, endeavor. It's only now do I realize how important it was in really changing the overall disability narrative when you're an athlete with a disability from sort of going into the possible rather than impossible. Wendy Murphy's uh, story really moved me. I mean, she was active kid. She, you know, described her life taking three steps at a time. And then she has this tragic accident. Yours is different. You were born with this disability or it certainly happened through surgical procedure. What advice do you, when you're out speaking around the world, do you share with those people that are new to a disability that, that they weren't born with it, but suddenly their, their life changes Dramatically, My advice is a little bit different than, than most, and it comes from, quite honestly, experience. And the first thing I, I tap into is being confident, you know, being assertive, taking control of the situation. Because when you have a disability, there's so many things you can't control, whether it's the barriers to, you know, just getting around, transportation, attitudes. And I, I think when you're given advice, it's often from the medical side of things, from the doctor's point of view. And that perspective is always to sort of be patient, but I'm not patient. And I always tell folks who have disabilities is to really go after it, be assertive, use your voice, because sometimes we're made to feel invisible when you have a disability. 
And I think the people who do use their voice, who do take control, who power past those attitudinal barriers are the ones that ultimately succeed. And certainly Wendy sounds like one of those folks. But I think in general, I always talk about the need to socialize right away after after acquiring a disability, joining hobbies. I mean, obviously sport being one of them. I mean, sport in itself is all about learning about your your body, your limitations, and all that is so important when you first uh, acquire a physical disability like Wendy, of course. What do we need to do as a society to not look at somebody with a disability the way you refuse to be looked at and to realize that we're all human beings, that would be a much better world if it was accessible to everyone? Well, you've, you've had my, my colleague Megan Hines on as well, and Megan and I think almost the same on this, and, and that's we really need to normalize disability. I mean, in so many ways, if you're just someone who wants to carry on life like everyone else, we really should normalize that, and we shouldn't preclude someone uh, who has a disability from taking part in all aspects of life, whether it's you know joining the corporate workforce or quite literally playing sport. And I often take the words of, uh, you know, David Onley, who, uh, you know, sadly just recently passed away and was a strong personal mentor for me. He thinks we're not, he, he thought we weren't even close to getting there when it came to, you know, accessibility for everyone, for, for example. But we have to know the line keeps moving. I mean, whether you're a CEO, politician, activist or employee, accessibility needs to be talked about more and more by every leader. It's going to become one of the most singular main issues we have here in in North America with our aging population requiring accessible housing, transportation, personal support workers. All of these things are going to be central to our economy. And frankly, it feels like I'm one of the few people, but obviously few people um, who have a disability that keep talking to this and it can't be um, ignored. And so while I am excited for federal and provincial legislation on accessibility, we really need to go further. It needs to be uh, taken on by every uh, leader. All of us have to get involved in this massive issue and um, it needs to be addressed before we do anything, uh, quite frankly, Tony. Joel, I've heard you speak not only on my podcast, but live. You're engaging, you're enlightening, you're powerful. I want more people to hear your words. What is the best way for anybody in my audience who says, I would love to have you come and speak at a conference or an event? What's the best way to get a hold of you? There's a few ways. I, I love LinkedIn just like you do, Tony. And uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can just literally search me out on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter at Joel Demby, all lowercase. And uh, yeah, I'd love to talk about accessibility because I also think there's a, a huge economic opportunity involved in addressing that barrier. And I do think there's a lot of people sitting on the sidelines right now, uh, people that I know, Tony, who would love to get involved and, and help solve this issue. Because I do think once we solve this accessibility barrier, which I know will continue to move as we create new digital and uh, amazing technologies, that it is going to provide uh, some amazing opportunities for all Canadians. Joel Demby, I think we lost a very special person. He was a friend of mine as well. I think he's passed the torch to you and carry it high and carry it well because uh, what you're doing is extraordinary work. Thanks for joining me on Chatter That Matters. Thanks, Tony. And thanks for uh, having me on again. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.